friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is the very end of October, but it's still October, and it's still Respect Life Month. I know we talk a lot about dignity of life issues, especially vulnerable pre-born human life, pregnant moms and their babies. We talk a lot about that on the show on Conversations with Consequences, but it really is a, an issue that galvanizes us, and it should galvanize every Catholic, every Christian, actually every person, every person in the United States and across the world, because in a world where the most vulnerable are discarded and, and are made part of that terrible throwaway culture that Pope Francis talks about, in that world, how can anything go right? What can we expect from a culture that sacrifices their own babies on the altar of sexual liberation, on the altar of, of selfishness, on, on the altar of saying, well, I just don't have time to take care of my neighbor right now to help her or that young family with a new baby on the way. Yes, we do spend a lot of time talking about these things. We do so because we are really moved, moved for the plight of babies, the plight of their mothers the plight of their fathers and their extended families, and the plight of our whole culture, which suffers terribly from the blight of abortion and has since 1973, when it became legal because of Roe v. Wade. To round out the end of uh, Respect Life Month, we've asked Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, who serves as the pro-life chair for the USCCB. We wanted to ask him the overview you know, of, of the all the dioceses across the United States, how they're, what wonderful things they're doing for Respect Life Month. And also, we're going to ask him about St. Joseph. This is the year of St. Joseph. His name is Joseph, and he has a, sp a special connection. But first, we'll be talking to the wonderful Jeannie Mancini. She's the president of the March for Life and a personal friend. She just received a prize that we'll be talking about. I was I was really happy that I was able to go to D.C. to watch her receive the prize. It's very well deserved. She's a, a person who has done magnificent things for the pro-life cause, and she heads that. It's, it's more than a march, the March for Life, because it has become a year-long association that just galvanizes pro-life sentiment all across the country, all over the place, not just in that one day in Washington when hundreds of thousands of people show up with such joy and vibrancy and optimism to march up the, that long street to um, the Supreme Court and, and let the whole world know, let the whole country know that Americans value our little brothers and sisters and, and we're ready to stand up for them. Welcome to the show, Jeannie. Well, Gracie, thank you so much for having me. Jeannie, you received a very special prize. Can you tell us about it? John Paul II <laughs> Award for the New Evangelization from the Catholic Information Center. And I was so honored and humbled uh, to receive that award, uh, in part because we just love the CIC so much when we're working from the office. I'm over at the CIC quite frequently for daily mass and confession and just trying to do some work in front of the Blessed Sacrament there. And 
I'm just a huge fan of, as of course, both of us are, and, and most of your listeners, I'm sure, are of St. John Paul II the Great, such a prolific writer. Gosh, he just was really what the church needed for our particular moment in history and was the Pope for the large majority of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was just really honored to, to receive that award. And I was honored to be there to watch you receive it. And you gave oh, a beautiful speech about how your work is part of the new evangelization. And I thought that that was very interesting and it connected some dots for me. Explain to our listeners, how is being pro-life and, and the wonderful work that you do at the March for Life a vital part of the new evangelization that St. John Paul II mapped out for us? Yeah, well, part of, even in my research for this, what I found so fascinating is that the new evangelization is considered to have been born in the United States in 1993, the first and only time that the United States has hosted World Youth Day. Mm -hmm. And the World Youth Day theme that year was, uh, I came so that they might have life. Of course, World Youth Day had been started about 10 years before by Pope John Paul II. He'd seen how gathering families and people around particular issues seemed to bear tremendous amount of fruit for the culture. And so he decided to get the young people together. And this was part of his efforts for the new evangelization. And so he he gathered them together in 1993 in Denver, Colorado. As he came down in his helicopter in the stadium there, the president, who at that time was Bill Clinton, of course, very pro-abortion, and Mrs. Clinton in their you know diplomatic skills greeted him as a leader of, of the Catholic Church, the World Catholic Church. And the very first words that came out of our Holy Father's mouth were, America, defend life. <laughs> and uh, it was, yeah, it was a profound moment and profound few days there in Denver. And that time period, that World Youth Day is considered to be the birth of the new evangelization in the United States of America. Gosh, so many people define the new evangelization in different ways, but essentially it's the antidote to a culture of death in the United States. And so it's upholding with courage and with joy the teachings of the human person. And it's acknowledging that, you know, God's plan for the human person is also an attractive plan. It's a plan for fully humanly flourishing. And so our role in evangelizing is a role of witness, but it's also a witness to attractiveness, right? And to kind of the way that it should be and to joy and especially God's plan for marriage and family and life and being open to life. And all of those things is very much at the center of all of that. When John Paul II uh, said to America, about life, I felt that I think he must have been sensing like a vast sadness in the United States. No, of people abandoning all those all those essential um, foundational things that bring us so much joy: the family, our children, the generations, the things that make us so human, our relatedness, our relationships, and becoming maybe more more individualistic, more materialistic, and not being able to recapture that joy without without doing that in a very conscious way. I couldn't agree more, Gracie. I, I think that's exactly right. But I think I would also say that he knew that the United States is really considered the example for many other countries. Mm-hmm. So um, sadly, we lead in terms of pro-abortion policies. And even then, that was the case. And so... So we export, you know, we export that right, kind of sadness to the rest of the world. It, that's right. And even then, I mean, our March for Life was the largest, you know, gathering annually for a human rights issue around the world. And so I see it, too, that that he 
realized that kind of the heart of the culture of death in a lot of ways was was within the United States. And, you know, how do you shine the light on that and, and just kind of shine truth and joy on that that oppression, so to speak. And I think that's what he was doing in choosing that theme. I came so that they might have life and have it to the full. And Jeannie, when I've been to the March for Life, which I have been every year for many years now, what I feel is that joy of the culture of life because it's a tremendously happy occasion. I remember one time telling someone who hadn't been there about it and they were astounded. They thought, no, I, I, did, I didn't picture it that way because, of course, we don't get a lot of good press in the media. They pictured it as sort of an angry demonstration, like those women's marches or maybe ugly pictures. And I, I tried to express and I was encouraging them to come. I said, no, no, imagine the happiest place on earth filled with the happiest people saying the most beautiful things and asking for and asking for true happiness for everyone around them absolutely i, I couldn't agree more there i mean partly the large majority of participants in the March for Life are young people. And the joy comes from knowing that they're standing on the right side of history here and that sometime soon they will abolish a person to use their own language. And there is a bittersweet tension that day because we are commemorating a loss of 62 million Americans. And, you know, even the the end of the March for Life is women and, and men sharing their testimonies of having been involved in abortion and having regretted that That's at the true. Supreme Court. So there's there's definitely, a, there is such a joy to the march, but there's a, a sadness and a grief too. And there's kind of an interesting tension between those two poles, I guess you could say, because again, we know that we're there for the right reason and that we soon will, will bring an end be important enough to to fight for and it it so many different causes right but at the same time it's like gosh and there's so much grief over what has already gone but 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 Jeannie there's no anger at the march there's no anger there's no recrimination there's no anger there's no aggression there's uh when when you talk about the sadness you talk uh, it's like a sadness that's been that's been addressed by the Mm, mercy of god a healed grief grief. and are people and, and and you meet people there who are in the process of healing their grief by participating in the march by being surrounded by those beautiful high ideals of mercy that mercy does exist that it can that it can fix every hurt every past stumble uh, that's what I feel at the march. Oh, I love that. That is our hope. And I, I know, so part of what we do is when we choose themes and we choose speakers, we're hoping um, and praying that they will, uh, you know, pass that on to the marchers, that mercy, that healing, etc. And I know when I speak anytime, even in a very pro-life audience, I always remind people that there's always hope and healing um, for anyone who's been involved in abortion and that choosing life isn't easy. Uh, Choosing life is hard, but it is empowering. It's the right thing. It's beautiful. We're strengthened. We're given courage through it, all of those things, but it's not easy either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the culture sets us up for failure too. At the yeah. when it comes to choosing yeah. life or death, right? The culture sets us up very much, and and I feel that that's getting worse. Um, I see young the the culture is becoming more coarsened in a sense, and, yeah. and more you know sexual liberation is becoming more and more central, you know, to people's ideas of human flourishing. That it does set us up for failure when it comes to that that very important moment where we can choose life or we can choose death. 
And so coming back to the new evangelization, what I love about this is that Pope John Paul II spoke a lot about appealing to the deepest recesses of a person's heart. And I have yet to encounter anyone, Gracie, who really wants to be involved in sex outside of marriage or who really wants to choose abortion or what have you. And so, so yes, the culture is setting us up. And that is what's so beautiful about the new evangelization, mm-hmm. though. It's like, and guess what? You know, God's plan and, and the natural law is even stronger mm-hmm. than these superficial, false cultural things that are, that are happening. It's so true, and Jeannie. It's like reality is not arbitrary, you know, so we can say, yeah, sexual liberation is really liberating, but then when people live it, their experience is not that it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it, The real experience is that it's, it, you know, a person will flourish in a healthy marriage, you know, in that capacity and, and what have you. And so, so it's so consoling and settling to know that God's plan, and even philosophically speaking, the natural law helps us to flourish within the realm of what is real, true, and good, not necessarily, you know, these societal influences that may or may not be going in a good direction. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're chatting with Jeannie Mancini. She's the president of the March for Life. So Jeannie, the new evangelization proposes that human longings remain the same, that human nature remains the same, that the things that that are going to fulfill our longings are not changed, that have not changed in this crazy modern world that we live in. Absolutely. That all of us have that deepest experience of deep in our hearts, really deep down inside for some of us that we we long for a relationship with God, that we're made for a relationship with God, and then we're made for relationships with others. You know, original sin, the way that it plays out, muddies the water, so to speak. It, it can bring some confusion and some of those things and bring shame into the equation and what have you. But that deepest experience of what it means to be a person is still right there in our heart. And some of us have some baggage, you know, to work through to experience it or to feel it, but it's there, there in all of our hearts. And so part of the new evangelization is just appealing to those deepest desires in a person's heart right before you, because it's there for everyone. And I guess it's new because it's it's a very modern thing that, that we're experiencing. It's very it's very novel as, as the way our culture is now asking us to live in a way that disregards those deepest longings. And that's why, mm. because even before, even, even though a hundred years ago, before that, these bad things still happen. People still had abortions. Nobody was pretending that that was a good solution. Nobody was pretending mm-hmm. that that was anything but a, a terrible disaster for everyone involved. But now our culture lies to us constantly and says, no, this, these things are not disasters. These things that are going to crush you are going to make you happy. And then we go out into, and, into the world and experience all this culture as a lie. Yeah. You know, it, it's so beautiful and interesting that the Holy Spirit gives to the church and to the world what she needs for a particular time period. Mm-hmm. And particularly in raising up saints, whether it's, you know, St. John Paul II, or we can think of, you know, St. Teresa of Calcutta or St. Maximilian Colby. And yeah, the, the saints of today definitely are very counter-cultural. I mean, probably the saints have always have been counter-cultural, but that doesn't mean to... So while we're... I mean, gosh, we say it, it sounds so trite, we're in the world, but not of it. So it's to take what's good of this world and to live it to the full, to fully humanly flourish through the goods of this world, but at the same time to to live within, you know, the reality of what it means um, to be real, true, and good within that. Um, but, you know, that the laws of morality and Catholicism and what have you, they're not the 
laws of oppression. There are the laws and the invitation to freedom and to happiness and to joy. What I like so much about the march, Jeannie, is that it's a vehicle for young people to leave their parishes, their their hometowns, and go somewhere where they're surrounded by others who are pro-life. And this might be, for, for many of these kids, sometimes they're attracted to these trips because they get to leave town and be in a hotel with their friends. And, <laughs> and it's very fun and exciting. And I was young once, and I remember how that was. But um, you create a fervor all across the United States because these kids are coming from all across. And you create a pro-life uh, fervor in, in all these different locations for young people. And then I know that they go home and they they reproduce that in their in their schools and in their parishes. And that's just invaluable. Absolutely. I hope that that's exactly what happens, Gracie. I mean, between, you know, our wonderful speakers and then the many different prayer activities that they're, they're taking part in. And I think there's something about the whole is greater than the sum of its parts when they see so many people there, you know, fighting for this issue, peacefully fighting for this issue. It's like your heart is just uplifted so much. And you know, it's it's the, the battle of our time, you know, and, and hopefully you go home and then want to do that 365 days a year, not just the day of the March for Life. Um, and I've heard a lot of conversion stories from the march. So like you said, sometimes the motivations always aren't 100% pure for coming to the march. Even Which is okay. The march a few weeks ago. And one of my roommates from years ago when I was single um, was there with a bunch of kids and we were kidding around. She was saying, well, you know, I don't know how many of them were coming because they didn't have to go to school. But yes, exactly. Like <laughs> the experience itself can be very evangelizing, you know, and, and that's okay. God meets us where we're at. But I I have heard of people finding religious vocations, you know, by coming to the march, like, or finding just a vocation of service to life. So like wanting to be a pro-life attorney or wanting to work for the pro-life movement or wanting to be a mom, you know, um, building a culture of life, changing one diaper at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so I, I certainly think that by God's grace, the march does kind of invoke grace to people that, that come to be able to help them fulfill their mission because everybody does have a mission involved in building a culture of life and you know by that Gracie there are things that you do that no one else can do and Mm -hmm. and likewise there are things that I can do that you can't do there are things that you do that I can't do and yet we together we do great things right and and it's like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts again and all of us have something to contribute to building this culture of life and the more that we can do that with just a lot of generosity and and joy you know the greater things will happen. You know, the, the March for Life had a great effect on my husband, whom you know, Jeannie. Yeah. And he's a convert. I've, I've talked about him on the radio many times. Poor thing. And he he's a convert <laughs> to, to Catholicism. And he, he didn't have a real understanding of the pro-life movement, just simply because he grew up outside of these circles. So going to the March for Life, the first time he went to the March, I was a speaker actually that year. That's why he went up because he norm, he's normally working very hard. Um, I remember that year. You I remember, remember right? too. Yeah, yep, I do. I do. That was such an honor. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh gosh, of course. So he came up and what astounded him was all the media accounts of pro-lifers he told me were wrong. He told me these this is an amazing group of people. These people are wonderful. <laughs> because there's this media, you know, there's this 
media darkness around us about around pro-lifers you know that we're we only care about babies until they're born and then we I don't know they say terrible things and then it happens that the media doesn't even cover the march for life I'm always so amazed when I come back every year from the march and someone I know who's not pro-life who's outside of these circles will ask me where were you I said oh is that the march for life and they're like what's that so well that's the largest human rights yearly demonstration in in the United States Mm. maybe the world (laughs) and they're like oh I never heard of it (laughs) so well they don't cover it they don't cover it in the major in the major news except that time of course when we had the president right and the vice president (laughs) yeah we do try very much to uh, we certainly do many 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 media interviews and I think it's very different than it was a few years ago but it's true that this is a topic that is not covered in fairness um it, it it's very sad and in talking with different reporters over the years the ones who are pro-life will tell me, and this is not working for a friendly outlet. I mean, those who work, you know, in sort of like the mainstream outlets tell me that there's no other topic that is treated like this. You have to use certain language. Uh, you have to report things a certain way. And if you sort of come out of the closet as being pro-life, I mean, you basically get blackballed. They take you, you know, off the beat. Ways. It's, they take you off yeah, the beat right really away, do. right? They really do. So it's, it's unfortunate. Listen, we have to keep one of the things that we can do this there is use social media. And at the March for Life, what we try to do is engage people with stories. Stories are so powerful. And it's what the other side does so well. They tell stories. And social media allows us to tell stories. So for many, many years now, we've had our, our hashtag on the day of the March for Life. So that's on Facebook, Instagram, on Twitter, whatever social media, a medium you use, we use the hashtag why we march. Hashtag why we march and tell your story. Show pictures, tell the story of your mother choosing adoption. Sometimes it's sad stories. You know, maybe it's a little brother or sister who has Down syndrome and how it's helped your family so much. Or, you know, so the stories make such a difference and they can really change hearts and minds. Jeannie, every year before the march, a couple months before, three months, I guess, you debut the theme because every year the march has a different theme and you've had fabulous themes that are very touching. Tell us about this year's theme and what it means. Oh, we are so excited about this year theme. And we discern it months and months in advance. So we discerned this, wow, four or five months ago. Um, Our theme for the 2022 March for Life is equality begins in the womb. Equality begins in the womb. So essentially, everybody over these past few years is in debates about the COVID-19 pandemic, about racial justice protests, about anything that has to do with equality, right? And this is these are important conversations, but we'd like to bring into that a critical element that's lacking, which is equality in the womb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, why don't we talk about unborn babies when we debate about equality? since they can't speak for themselves. So our culture recognizes the inherent dignity of life, but when it comes to babies in the womb, often they're disregarded. So so we're excited to talk about, you know, disability status doesn't matter, skin color doesn't matter, socioeconomic background doesn't matter. What matters is that every life is precious and should be protected from the moment of conception. So this is a very important theme at this time of our, our cultural moment where we seem to be spending so much of our 
our energy talking about race, talking about equality. And it's true that we do disregard. I mean, if you talk even just about minorities, right? So many more minority babies end in abortion, their lives ended in abortion than white children. And that seems to be disregarded. So why is that happening? What's wrong? What's wrong in our minority families that they're choosing death for their children? This is a very deep inequality. Yeah, that's right. I think, sadly, Gracie, tapping into something you said earlier, it's marketed more to minority populations. Um, So, for example, we know that in New York City, it's more likely that a black unborn baby will be aborted than will be brought to term. And that's just by New York City's health statistics from their city, you know, health department that we know that. So it's very, very sad. We know that in China, it's gotten so bad in terms of gender side that they're actually considering state policies. I mean, we've got like a whole you know population of women that are missing, basically that have been aborted, have been terminated before being brought to term. And they're considering, because of these large cultural ramifications, men, two men to one wife in China what? because they've lost a whole <laughs> generation of girls. So, I mean, yeah, no, there's definitely, and of course, when we think of, I mean, Gracie, you're more expert on this than I am, but when we think of a baby who's tested positive for Down syndrome in the womb, I mean, that population of people is terminated in the United States alone at as high as like 80%. Um, in Iceland, of course, they boast about eradicating Down syndrome, which they didn't eradicate Down syndrome. They're terminating that's people like with a, Down syndrome. That's like eradicating cancer by immediately killing you when you get your diagnosis. Right? Mm, that's a it's a hard analogy to hear, but an accurate one. That's that's right. And I think, you know, Gracie, I think of the story you shared at the March for Life, the parents who, when the baby was born, had, you know, a cleft palate and w- wanted to sue because they didn't know that and they would have terminated the baby. And it's just oh, heartbreaking to hear such things. I mean, so, yes, yeah, so uh, disproportionate my, minorities, people with disabilities are disproportionately targeted for abortion. There's no question that that is the case case. And so we're, we're really trying to change that and to draw, you know, the March for Life is a springboard for education. And so we want to bring this into the light this year as much as possible so that we can help it. This is a big year for the pro-life movement. This is a year that could see big changes even before the March. Uh, no, I guess not before the March, because we don't expect any decisions hand, handed down on the Dobbs case uh, before January, before the end of January when the March takes place. But we might have a, a complete revolution of our abortion landscape. Do you think, Jeannie, that this could be in the offing this year? Please, God, I am so praying and fasting that the question of abortion in the United States returns to the legislative branch where it belongs, whether it's in the states, probably a little bit at the federal level. I, I think, you know, I think that there's a real possibility for that with this makeup of the Supreme Court in this particular lawsuit with Dobbs in Mississippi. I think that there's a real possibility for that more than I've ever thought in my lifetime. So I encourage all of your listeners to really undertake prayer and fasting because this is very much a spiritual battle. Well, thank you, Jeannie. We're going to take that very seriously because wonderful things could happen if we all put our prayers into this and also our fasting and all the things that we can do as as Catholics to lift up our hearts to God for, for such an important cause. So it's such a pleasure to chat with you, Jeannie. Thank you for Likewise. everything that you do, campaigning and the march and, and all the fabulous uh, things that you give to, to our country. If you want to learn more about the March for Life and support their wonderful work, please visit March for Life. 
www.thepowerhouse.org. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Gracie. It's such a gift to be on with you. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We're so excited to have our good friend, Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, who serves as the pro-life chair for the USCCB. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Nauman. Thank you. It's good to be with you and, and your listeners. Really, I'm very excited to have you on. You are, as I explained in the intro, you are the pro-life chair for the United States Council of Bishops. I'm so pro-life. It's, it's such a huge part of my life, of, of the way I relate to everything it seems in my life and and I know many of our listeners are too and I want to ask you if you could tell us please why is it such an important part of being Catholic <laughs> yes well thanks thanks uh, we're, we're grateful to hear your passion for this part of the church's teaching and it's important and I would summarize it with the reasons why the bishops two years ago said this is the preeminent public policy issue of our time and human rights issue of our time. The first reason is because it attacks life when it's most vulnerable, most defenseless. So that that's the number one reason. The second reason is that it, it attacks the, the family and the bond, the most sacred bond between the mother and the child. And, and our this culture of death pits mother's welfare against the child's life, which is, it's not true that their welfares are intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it, it attacks that most fundamental of all human re- relationships, the foundation of the family, and, and that's the foundation of our our church, our, our culture, our civilization. And then the third reason is is just the sheer numbers. Over well over sixty one million children killed by abortion since nineteen seventy three. And with each one of those abortions, there the second victim is the mother, because the court in 1973 put all of the responsibility on the woman. Mm-hmm. In in um, deceptively, they were saying, "Well, this is to empower women." But what they effectively did, they, they said, if the woman chooses abortion, the man has no responsibility in this at all. And so, so it's not only the lives of these innocent children, but it scars. And and I've seen this through my experience with our post-abortion ministry, our Project Rachel ministry, it scars the mother and the father and many others that were implicated in it. And it it scars them emotionally and spiritually, and sometimes, sadly, it scars the mother physically as well. I think that that legal abortion has had a terrible effect on our profession, our medical profession. It's it's cheapened our profession, it's it's twisted it, it's degraded our profession, it's it's said that there are some, there are times when a person, a human person, can be our patient and also our victim. So for mm-hmm. me, uh, abortion also is is a terrible blight on the medical profession, which I think ought to be very noble and high minded. Yeah, I mean the fact that we've rewritten the Hippocratic Oath mm-hmm. <laughs> and taken out what even you know pre-Christian culture saw as uh, true evil, and now we rewrite that. So. Fortunately, you know, with our Catholic Medical Association, with the, the students, the new doctors, and we have a mass for them, and they, they take the original oath, and I'm so proud of them. Yes, it, it, that's it, wonderful. It has, it has, right, it's, and now, you know, I think what's 
we're at a new moment where our, the proponents of abortion are no longer satisfied with it being an option or a choice. The rhetoric that they they use for decades to to get people to go along with it, but now they're trumpeting as as healthcare and therefore as a right. And in doing that, now I think it, it's going to harm the medical profession more because they're they're at a point where they're saying that institutions and doctors, nurses, they have to participate um, because. You know, as you know, most most doctors and medical professionals don't want anything to do with abortion, but now they want to make everybody complicit and taxpayers complicit as well. Yes, I've often thought that uh, any time that a person has to be killed, it should be done by an executioner type and not involve the medical profession, whether that's yeah. an abortion or a suicide, an assisted suicide. I I think that I know that the the medical profession is brought in as cover, as ethical cover and moral cover for what is uh, deeply unethical and moral act. No, do you, so you Archbishop, you are the chair for the pro-life committee and this is a spectacularly important year for the for pro-lifers, for anyone who cares about the dignity of life because this is the year that we are going to have a very important test case go before the Supreme Court. It's less than a couple months away that the Supreme Court is going to hear the arguments on December 1st. Are you helping to prepare the parishes to pray for this big moment or to understand the gravity of the situation? Yes, absolutely. And we need everybody to be praying for this. I mean, this is a moment that those of us who've been in the pro-life movement for a long time that we've dreamed of and, and that we've hoped for for so long. And we do have an initiative for Catholics and Christians joining across the country to pray for this. Your listeners can go to Pray for Dobbs, which is the name of the case, D-O-B-B-S, prayfordobbs.com. That will access you to all sorts of information about how you can pray for wisdom for our Supreme Court justices and courage for them because uh, there's a lot of efforts to intimidate them at this time. And uh, for the, the first time in almost 50 years, we have a court that we, we hope that our majority, uh, that if they don't overturn Roe v. Wade with this case, they will empower the states to have more ability to protect innocent human life. Now, as someone who has been pro-life for a long time and has been closely watching all the situation and, and knows a lot about the Dobbs case and the Supreme Court makeup, do you have hope, apart from supernatural hope, uh, that things <laughs> will turn out okay? Yes, I, I, I do have hope. I, I mean, I think when you look at the makeup of the court, it would seem, and but we never know until <laughs> until they actually have to decide on a, a case. And so we have a lot of new members of the court since there's been any major case really taken up. There was the Texas case recently, but they really didn't decide on the substance of that. They, so, But I, I think that was a hopefully a positive sign that when they do rule on substance in the Dobbs case, that will get a good ruling. So I think there's legitimate reason to hope at this time. And, and there's been a lot of prayers and work and effort by many, many people to bring us to this point. I, I think one of the, the great goods that maybe the Lord's brought out of this terrible situation of legalized abortion is that the proponents thought if they kept abortion legal this long that the opposition would have gone away and yet you know i think the fact that this still becomes an important issue in every one of our elections mm-hmm. uh, that it's it's still a, a a question and we see this with the the march for life every year the passion and even a new generation of young people that I think we could argue are more pro-life than my age, their grandparents' age, or even their parents' age. Oh yes, so, I, I agree. I, know, I, so think I think there's a, a lot of reasons to hope. 
There's a couple reasons for that, uh, it seems to me. is Number one, the fact that a lot of these children have been hurt by abortion. These young people, I should say, have been hurt by abortion. Yes. Not necessarily directly, but they are living in that post-legal abortion world where so much uh, so much damage has been done to the relationship between men and women, to the family, to, to marriage. They know they have, there should be 60 or 70 million young people like them that don't exist mm. because they've been they've been destroyed that's number one but also number two is what I do for a living is fetal ultrasound and that kind those kinds of advances in science that have changed so much of our relationship to unborn human life the way we understand it the way we visualize it and we are able to connect much more deeply now than we could in 1973 when Roe was passed yeah absolutely and you know science is on our side yes and, and the technology is on our side as well well, and so you're exactly right. You know, I think the the ultrasound imaging has made the the humanity of the unborn undeniable, and uh, it's been a great help. You know, as you know, with our crisis pregnancy centers, and thank goodness for the Knights of Columbus that will donate these ultrasound machines to crisis pregnancy centers and and give parents an opportunity to see their child and. That's been powerful in saving many, many lives. Yes, I, I work for pregnancy centers and I read their ultrasounds. And uh, uh, another thing that it does is it brings the women in in the first place because yeah. they they want to date their pregnancies and it keeps them out of the clutches of places like Planned Parenthood where they'll give you a dating ultrasound, but then they, they shuttle you right into the abortionist's clinic <laughs> right next door. They'll give you the ultrasound and they'll say, okay, great, we can do an abortion because the baby's only 11 weeks. It, it really does, the nights of Columbus have been fabulous uh, with that uh, help. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're chatting with Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, Kansas, and he's also the pro-life chair for the USCCB. Your Excellency, I wanted to ask you about St. Joseph, the year of St. Joseph, and I wanted to read back to you something you wrote recently. As the faithful protector of both Jesus and Mary, we find in St. Joseph a profound reminder of our own call to welcome, safeguard, and defend God's precious gift of human life. What connections do you think we ought to be making between St. Joseph and his example for us and our pro-life commitments? Pope Francis has given us this year of St. Joseph, and one of the descriptors that he gave of Joseph in, in the letter introducing this year was he, he talked about St. Joseph having creative courage. And I love that. I love that term. And I think that's what we need at this moment as well. I've always been blessed to have St. Joseph as a patron. And part of the reason my well, the reason my mother named me, my, my father was killed when my mother was pregnant with me. Oh, no. And, and so my mother felt, well, St. Joseph was a really good foster father for for Jesus, so she thought that was pretty good credentials for making him my foster father. So um, I've always had a a great devotion to him, but I think, you know, Joseph shows, you know, true manliness, true fatherhood, in that he's a protector Mm -hmm. of Mary and Jesus. And, you know, his life is constantly being interrupted. I think he must have been afraid to go as to sleep at night at one point because he was getting these dreams with yes. messages <laughs> from the Lord. But, and they would interrupt his life, but, I mean, we, he says nothing in the Scripture, but we see his actions. He moves quickly and decisively uh, to protect Mary, to protect Jesus. And that's what we need all of us to do today. And I think there's a special message for men 
that we need to exercise this true paternity to be protectors of mothers and children both. Oh, you're so right, uh, Your Excellency. It's such a beautiful example. And, and you know, these days, uh, manhood is barely considered a virtue. And St. Joseph is a, is a person who exhibits that shining, beautiful, noble manhood that uh, can sacrifice itself and, and, and can live for the other completely. What a beautiful example in these days where manhood is not, it's considered toxic if it's talked about at all. Yes, and you know, I think so many of our men are confused by the culture today, and, and we need these great examples of, of being true men, authentic men, and what it means to be true fathers. And as I said, you know, the abortion decision, one of the things it did was it, it stripped the father of any ability to protect his child. And it actually incentivized fathers to encourage the mothers to abort the child because then they had no responsibility. That's a real tragedy. It's wounded mothers, but it's also wounded the fathers as well. Yes, and uh, it's a terrible tragedy when one thinks to know, I haven't known someone like this personally, but imagine that feeling of knowing that your child is going to be destroyed and not being able to defend the child because the, the law has stripped you of that right and the culture has stripped you of that right. You're basically told from right from the beginning that your opinion doesn't matter. You're only the father as though something more important than fatherhood exists. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yeah, and I, I have known through our post-abortion ministry men that suffer from this a great deal that their impotence because of the law to be able to protect their children and to really love the mother of their child as well. We know after abortion, so many of those relationships are destroyed as well. You so know, it's also what it, what, it, what it has done, I'm sure you agree, is that it when the woman, since it's all in the woman's lap, she gets to decide, then if she does uh, bring the baby to life, it ceases to be the man's responsibility because she could have aborted. I'm, I'm talking about irresponsible men here. Yeah, you're right. It's been destructive, as I said, of the family, of the, of the whole family. You know, and it, this is obviously not God's plan, how, what he created as far. And we know, and there's so much data that shows how important the father is in the development of the child. And we're living with so many wounds today in a culture where there's so many children growing up without their father in the home. I grew up in a sig- single parent family, but it was, uh, uh, the circumstances were different than many today where the father has either chosen or they both chosen to not have this cohesive family that is the optimal mm-hmm. environment for a child for a child to grow. So you had the difficulties of a of a household headed by your poor mother who had to be everything to you and to your siblings, but you didn't have that sense of abandonment, perhaps. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I was blessed. I had a lot of good examples, good male examples in my life and family, and also the priests of our parish were very influential in my life. And I think, you know, part of the the Lord can bring good out of tragedy, and I, I, I wonder today if I, if I would have been a priest if, if the circumstances were different, but it was one of the reasons I think I was attracted to the priesthood, because I saw how important the priests were for our family. Oh, that's lovely. It's so true. It's uh, for many for many young people. It's only the priest of the parish is the is the person who gives them that that fatherhood that they need so badly. Yeah. In my life, Your Excellency, I became very pro life when my husband and I adopted our fifth child, and yeah. I realized that this little girl who had been abandoned on the street was that quintessential unwanted person. And 
it, it taught me in a way that that excited me so much that I had to I had to become I became very intense about it that there are no unwanted people and that God mm-hmm. creates everyone out of love and and with a deep purpose there's never there's no purposeless creation do you think that's something that people need to spend more time praying about about how every soul is is, is made with a purpose yeah absolutely and, and you know I think Mother Teresa used to speak about the greatest poverty is the poverty that says we can't love one more child we can't close one more child or house one more child and that each life is a miracle and has a purpose in God's plan that and when we fulfill that purpose the world is better we draw love uh, children draw love out of their parents and out of their families when they're embraced and accepted that's why our crisis pregnancy centers are so important to surround mothers that are experiencing a difficult pregnancy with support and with a loving community and another issue that you know I think is very important in our time and for the church to be involved with is the is the need for foster care parents as well i know in kansas here that's a high priority for us that so many of our children are languishing and oftentimes in the foster care system and we need to raise up adoptive parents and foster care parents and from our catholic communities and our parishes need to surround those families with love and support well thank you excellency for bringing that up it's a it's a very important thing and some of us might be called to foster or to support people who foster and and we should all prayerfully think about that so thank you so much for making time for us today it's a it's a great honor to have you on and we will go to prayfordogs.com so we can remember to pray for the wonderful cause of maybe Roe v. Wade not being the law of the land uh, and and sometime soon. So thank you, Your Excellency. Thanks, thanks, Dr. Christie, and and thanks. uh, It's been a pleasure to be part of a conversation of consequence with you. Thanks for great ministry you do on the radio. Oh, thank you. Our honor, truly. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. So we participate in the dialogue between the Lord Jesus and a scribe, basically a scripture professor with a specialty in Mosaic law, about the first of the commandments. Jesus' answer is well known to us. Quoting the book of Deuteronomy, perhaps the most famous passage of the Hebrew Bible, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then he volunteered what he thought was the second of all 613 commandments the scribes had enumerated in what we now call the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, taken from the book of Leviticus. Jesus concluded by saying there's no other commandment greater than these. Upon hearing Jesus' answer, the scribe exclaimed, Well said, teacher, expressed his agreement that loving God and neighbor is worth more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, worth more, in other words, than all the other worship we could possibly give to God in the temple or anywhere. The worship that's most important, the priority that we should place in our relationship with God is to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor. Jesus concludes the conversation by saying to the scribe, somewhat curiously, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Through his understanding, in other words, he was close to the kingdom, but not yet in it. Why? St. Luke's Gospel, after a similar conversation with another scholar of the law who had asked not which is the first of the commandments, but what must I do to inherit eternal life, after the answer to love God with all we've gotten to love our neighbor as ourselves, Jesus said, do this and you will live. 
The upshot, as we see from both of these dialogues, is that to enter the kingdom, we must do more than know what we need to do, but we actually must do what we know we need to do. So we need to ask ourselves, do I really love God? To love God is more than to acknowledge his existence. It means more than to fulfill certain duties that we owe him out of justice. It means to be willing to sacrifice for him willingly, the way we sacrifice readily for anyone we love, like a man in love sacrificed for the woman he wants to be his wife, or a mother sacrificed for a beloved child. It means to care about what God cares about. Many of us think our relationship with God is fine if basically we love the Lord with most of our heart, with some of our mind, with a little of our strength, and with the majority of our soul. As long as we're not committing mortal sins, we tell ourselves, as long as we're not betraying God or angry at Him, or despising Him or doing anything evil against him, then things are basically fine in our relationship. Or we can think that we love the Lord simply because we have good thoughts about him, admire him, think that he's kind, merciful, and generous. But Jesus is calling for much more than this. Love is more than having good feelings or impressions about another. Love is the unconquerable benevolence that leads to willing, to choosing consistently the good of the other for the other's sake. Love is opting as a habit to give ourselves for another, putting someone else ahead of us, like Jesus would say during the Last Supper and put into action the following afternoon, to lay down one's life for one's friends in little ways or supremely. There are many Christians who love God to the point of making sacrifices for Him. But as this Sunday's Gospel shows us, it's not enough to sacrifice some of the time and the gifts He's given for Him and for His glory. It's not enough to give God some of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Jesus is calling us to love God in deeds and affections with all we've got. So we need to get practical. Jesus calls us to love Him with all our mind. How much of our mind do we actually dedicate to God? Do we try to think as God thinks in our decisions? Do we truly fill our minds with His thoughts through prayer and reading the Bible or in good spiritual books? Or do we fill them with the world's thoughts through reading the paper more than the Bible or surfing the internet and watching television more than we pray? Jesus likewise calls us to love Him with all our heart. Do we really love God more than we love everything and everyone else in life? She says elsewhere in the gospel that we're not fit to be his disciple unless we love him more than our family members, more than our stuff, more than even our own life. This is obviously challenging, but we, do we try to love him with all our heart? He calls us, third, to love him with all our strength. How much effort do we make to love him? Do we battle through distractions and prayer? Do we prioritize mass, adoration, in time with him praying, making the effort to get there, especially during times when it's challenging to do so? When we do attend, do we try to give it 100% to pay attention? And he calls us to love him with all our soul. This means he wants us full of grace. So do we seek to stay free of all sin, or do we compromise with sin and give in to gossip or complaining or holding grudges and the like? Do we take advantage of the opportunities for the sacrament of confession so that whatever in our soul is not of God can be forgiven? Jesus similarly calls us to love our neighbor. And so we can likewise ask whether we're striving to love our neighbor with our mind. Are we thinking about our neighbor, trying to understand him or her, leading him or her to God through the neighbor's own categories? Do we think good things about our neighbors, noticing their good points rather than their weaknesses, giving them the benefit of the doubt rather than thinking the worst? Do we love our neighbor from our heart? Do we love our neighbor with affection, including those neighbors who are difficult to love? Are we sacrificing for our neighbors and going the extra mile to help them with deeds? Finally, do we love our neighbor with our soul? Since when we're in the state of grace, God is in our soul. Do we strive to love our neighbor together with God? Do we care in a special way for their souls, that they too be full of God? 
think most of us hearing these questions will recognize that we have a lot of work to do. But Jesus doesn't leave us on our own. He commands us to love only because he loves us first. He gives us what we need to do so. He pours his love into our hearts so that it may overflow into our mind, will, emotions, soul, and muscles. He enters into us so that together with him in the inside, we may love our neighbors he has loved us first. He makes it possible for us through love to enter his kingdom, to do what he teaches and to live. And we're so grateful. We need to keep before us the challenge he gives us, to love, to give, to sacrifice for God and others. This consequential conversation about the two most important things we need to do is a fitting context by which to approach All Saints Day, which will take place on Monday. There are various ways we can define holiness, but one of the best is that holiness is the perfection of love. Sanctity means loving God with all we've got and loving our neighbor with the love of God. St. Luke's Gospel, as I mentioned a little earlier, the scribe asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We could rephrase the question as, what must I do to become a saint? To get from not being far from the kingdom of God to entering into the kingdom of heaven is to love as Jesus describes. So it's important for us to focus on the love we put into our life, into living our faith. At Mass on All Saints Day, Jesus will enter into the consequential conversation with us that he does at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he proclaims to us the Beatitudes. We know the Beatitudes well, but we can examine whether we love God and others in putting the Beatitudes into practice. Do we love God and others so much that we're poor in spirit, devaluing the things of this world because we treasure God and sharing what we have with those who need it more than we do? Do we love God and others to the point of mourning Whenever others are suffering, do we seek to comfort them with the consolation we have received from God? Do we love God and others enough to become meek, gentle, and humble before them, rather than trying to affirm ourselves and our rights and our strength? Do we love God and others to hunger and thirst for holiness, for justice, for a right relationship with God and them, and to be passionate to remedy any injustice against God and others? Do we love God enough to become merciful like he is merciful, readily forgive and reconcile with others seventy times, seven times? Do we love God and others to be pure of heart, to be chaste, to see God in others, refusing ever to use them for our pleasure or needs? Do we love God and others enough to be persecuted and witness to our Christian faith, to be canceled, to be insulted, mocked, and calumniated? The path to heaven, the path to sanctity is a path of love. Jesus indicates it to us in the conversation he has with the scribe in the gospel that he wants likewise to have with each of us, and to help us on our road to sanctity through love. He gives us himself and his body and blood. Preparation for Mass on Sunday and Monday. Let us ask him to help us to pray with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. To be strengthened by him on the inside by means of Holy Communion. To do this in memory of him. Giving our bodies, our blood, our sweat, our tears, our mind, our heart, our soul, and strength for the good of others as Jesus has given all he had for us in our salvation. This is the path so that on future November 1st, others will be praying through our intercession and seeking to follow our truly Christian, indeed, holy example of Christ-like love. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 